Good morning, church, and good morning to those watching online. It's my pleasure today to get to observe the first Sunday of Advent with you all. So for those of you who don't know, the word Advent comes from the Latin adventus, meaning the coming or the arrival. The season of Advent in the church appeared as early as in the, excuse me, as early as the fourth century in an effort to draw our attention and stir our anticipation of our Savior's coming at Christmas. Today, Advent still serves as a time of preparation for our hearts by setting aside the four Sundays leading up to Christmas to press into the longing for the promised return of Jesus. But this season of anticipation doesn't end on Christmas Day. As followers of Christ, we are a people living between two Advents, the coming of Jesus as a baby in Bethlehem and his future triumphant return as the King of Kings. On that future day, every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more pain, grief, or death. All things will be made new. All that is wrong will be made right, and the eternal dwelling place of God will be with his people. This is the heart of Advent. Please stand with me as I light the first candle of Advent, the candle of hope. As we begin this season together, say this liturgy of preparation with me, written by Douglas McElvey. Your parts will be on the screen in bold. As we prepare our house for the coming Christmas season, we would also prepare our hearts for the returning Christ. You came once for your people, O Lord, and you will come for us again. Though there was no room at the end to receive you upon your first arrival, We would prepare you room here in our hearts and here in our homes, Lord Christ. As we decorate and celebrate, we do so to mark the memory of your redemptive movement into our broken world, O God. Our glittering ornaments and Christmas trees, our festive carols, our sumptuous feasts, by these small tokens we affirm that something amazing has happened in time and space that God on a particular night in a particular place so many years ago was born to us an infant king, our prince of peace. Our wreaths and ribbons and colored lights, our giving of gifts, our parties with friends, these have never been ends in themselves. They are but small ways in which we repeat that sounding joy first proclaimed by angels in the skies near Bethlehem. In view of such great tidings of love announced to us and to all people, how can we not be moved to praise and celebration in this Christmas season? As we decorate our tree and as we feast and laugh and sing together, we are rehearsing our coming joy. We are making ready to receive the one who has already with open arms received us. We would prepare you room here in our hearts and here in our homes, Lord Christ. Now we celebrate your first coming, Emmanuel, even as we long for your return. O Prince of Peace, our elder brother, return soon. We miss you so. Amen. Now Jack is going to come and read our scripture this morning. Our teaching text today is from Luke, the first chapter, verses 5 through 60. So let's settle in for a little story time. (laughs) Okay, get comfy. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah 
who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you were to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you were to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. 
Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sought three months and then returned home. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Give it up for Jackie. You guys are all still here. Let I test, test your resolve on Advent. All I'm going to do basically is read that again. And then we're going to be done. Um, so good to see you. Happy Advent. Um, can you say that? I don't know. All right. Um, okay, here we go. We're just going to go right into it. We're going to fire out of the gates here. Um, what we call the Old Testament ends in a bit of a cliffhanger. Uh, the Hebrew scriptures conclude in Malachi 4 uh, in quite a moment. If it was a Netflix show, no matter what time of night it was, you would say we definitely have to watch another one. But the challenge is the next installment is in production for 400 years. So you're Googling when is the next season coming, and there's very little results that are encouraging about that. This is how the, the Old Testament ends. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. See in 400 years. What? That's, that's quite a, a cliffhanger. Um, Malachi, as you all know, is, is a post-exilic prophet, uh, but everything wasn't golden. Um, God's people were still very much in a struggle to live out faithfulness to Yahweh, to live their vocation as the people of God that were a blessing to the whole world as God had promised Abraham all the way back. And so uh, Yahweh had been sending prophets over and over to call Israel home to their true identity for centuries. Um, but beyond a, a small remnant, few were actually following the way of God. And so Malachi's voice sort of rings out and then stops. 
and a widespread prophetic silence begins. And in this 400-year period that we, we sometimes call the intertestamental period, it's just a, fl- a few wispy pages uh, in, in your Bible, but 400 years passes, um, there, there was no prophet in Israel. And we know that people still followed God faithfully and some were still active and loving and speaking and, and praying and waiting. We see that in, in the lives of some of the characters that show up here in Luke 1. But Advent begins in waiting. It is first a season of waiting, a season of longing. And so we put ourselves in the story. We feel the tension uh, of, of needing God to show up. This was, this was, of course, a first century tension as they're waiting on God and longing for God. And it's been a long time since we had a prophetic word from God. But we are also longing for Christ as well. We need an advent, an arrival, God to show up. So as a culture, we're, we're okay. I mean, limited, yes, but okay at Christmas. Um, even if it's just a sliver of it. We can do the gifts and the songs. It's Mariah Carey time, uh, the holiday sales. But we just struggle a little bit with Advent. We don't do it quite as well. The waiting and the longing and the praying and the learning to hope, and sometimes the closing our mouths and sitting in silence. So sometimes we miss the weight of of words like a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious dawn. We struggle with the silence, so we miss the eruption of joy, the thrill of hope. I want to do something I've never done in an Advent, and it could backfire massively. <laughs> Excited? Um, I'm going to give you a 12-part Advent, Advent guide. So we're going to fly through these things, and you may need to co- I'm going to come back to some of them as we go. But we're basically just going to go through that story that we just read and try to understand how to wait well, how to, how to, how to worship well, how to pray well, how to be in Advent in this time of longing and preparation and silence. So do not be afraid. That's my first word to you. I just told you there's going to be 12 points. Do not be afraid, okay? It's one of the, uh, we're going to move quickly. This guide uh, from Luke 1 comes to us from a first century Greek, Greek doctor. I, I like this guy so much, I named a child after him. My second son is, is named Luke. And this guy, uh, this Greek doctor gets swept up in the movement of Jesus, and he comes and he applies his whole self to the telling of the message and story and gospel of Jesus. He applies his curiosity, his love, his training, his learning, his storytelling. And he's also helped and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he gives this account, this public account of Yahweh acting in the world in a particular way after 400-year cliffhanger. So we're going to follow the beginning of the story, 12 insights that are a guide for you during Advent. Here we go. You ready for this? You may have just heard this from Jackie, but let's get going. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. I promise I'm only reading a bit. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing the Lord's command and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Here's point one in your Advent guide is that you can live the story of God no matter the times. 
You can live the story of God no matter the times. The, in the time of Herod, king of Judah, this is who we come to know as Herod the Great, this was also the time of Rome. Since Israel's golden years under King David um, and since the split of the kingdom under the rule of Solomon and then the exile and then the return from exile, there had been four dominant world empires to come to power. The Babylonians, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, first under Alexander the Great and then later under his generals, the Seleucid and Ptolemaic dynasty. You remember this from history class? And now we're at the Roman Empire. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about this in Daniel 2. We're going to get to that in just a little bit, like around 9 or 10. Don't worry. Um, but during the later part of the Greek, the Greek period, the Greek dynasty, the Seleucid dynasty, there was a nasty ruler named Antiochus who oppressed Israel horrible, horribly. He also committed what's called the abomination of desecration. He sacrificed a pig on the altar in the holy place of the temple. And this was enough is enough for the Jewish people. So there was this period of history called the Maccabean Revolt, which um, Judas the Hammer helped to lead, great nickname. And ultimately, there was an establishment of the Hasmonean dynasty, a hundred years of Israel ruling themselves without a foreign occupying power. But there ends up near the end of that, it's the book of Rome for help. Will you back my appeal to power? Hycranus doubles down. He makes a deal back at home as well with an Edomite you're familiar with named Antipater. Got that? This is Herod's dad, okay? And in exchange for his help getting the throne, um, Herod is promised uh, that his, his, this, this guy, Herod, uh, is going to be in control of the region of Galilee. So this is Herod who becomes Herod the Great. Born an Edenite, given control of Galilee in this sort of political uh, dealing. But by the time we meet him in the text, he's also the ruler of Judah. What happened? Herod comes in and he loves the power. He ruthlessly squashes resistance to his rule. Eventually the Sanhedrin come to check his power and he appeals a Again, to Rome for help. Um, Caesar, Octavian, who becomes Caesar Augustus, loves this guy so much that he, he likes his confidence. He says, I'm going to send you back to, to, to your region with military might. So Herod comes in. Now he's got the backing of Rome, and he's taking names, dragging people out of caves, throwing them into the sea. The Sanhedrin that challenged his power, the priests, the rulers, he kills them, invites them over to his house. He drowns a bunch of them. He has like nine wives. This guy actually ends up rotting from the inside. Very dark dude. Um, I'm not going to get into everything you could say about Herod, but you remember in just a little bit in this story, he's going to try to kill all the babies because the Magi come and say someone's been born king of the Jews, and that was the title that Octavian had given him, very threatened. I want to say, these were not the easiest days to be a priest in the temple. Literally, you might get drowned. You might be murdered. You might be drug out of a cave and thrown into the sea. This is the things Herod was doing to solidify his power. So you're going to worship God. You're coming to the middle school on a regular Sunday with a snow flurry, but it looks like madness out there in the world. The newspaper headlines seem like, can you say God is in control? In the time of King Herod of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And what are they doing? They're living the story of God in the midst of the madness of the world. God, and God met them there. Worship to burn incense. I want to say this to you. Here's part of the Advent guide. You can keep your routines of hope in the midst of the chaos of the world.
in the midst of the pain and disappointment and grief and delay and longing, keep rhythms of hope alive in your heart because God does show up. That was one of the longest of the 12. Here we go. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled, as you would be, and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or drink fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and make ready a people prepared For the Lord, remember how Malachi ends and all of a sudden in Luke 1, this Greek doctor is showing us a little hint of something that's going on that God has been doing from the beginning. And the most often repeated phrase in the scripture is point two of your Advent guide, do not be afraid. Why? How? How can I not be afraid? Do not be afraid because God keeps promises, even promises that are very, very old. God sends a messenger to speak to Zechariah while he's going about his part in worship and ministry. And we get the most common reaction to an angel of the Lord that's recounted in the scriptures. People are abs- uh, they're startled and gripped with fear. We aren't given an exact description of the angel, but it doesn't seem to be like a floating baby trumpet player from medieval art. Something about this being is, is quite intimidating, and, it, and, and Zechariah is startled and gripped with fear, and so we get the most often repeated message from God in the scriptures. The most often repeated commandment of God in the scriptures. Do not be afraid. And it is pronounced in a time when there is clearly some reason for concern. Do not be afraid. No matter what it looks like, God keeps his promises. Look at what Zechariah hears. Your prayers have been heard. How powerful would that be to know from the mouth of the messenger of God, your prayers have been heard. Your wife will bear a son whom you are to call John, an impossibility basically. Your son will be great in God's sight. He's gonna abstain from booze, but he's gonna be filled with the spirit. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Do not be afraid, church. Do not be afraid, church. God keeps promises, even if they're old promises. All right, we're rolling, folks. Zachariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I think that's a reasonable question. The angel does not. I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news, and now you will be silent. And not able to speak until the day this happens. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true in their appointed time. You just feel, Gabriel, like, look at me. I'm an angel. You were just gripped with fear, were you not? Now you're doubting my words? Point three in your Advent guide, doubt is often overvalued. I'm not hating on it. 
It's a part of faith. And sometimes it can be an important part of our story. But it is never a good thing when we find ourselves in a prolonged period of doubting God, God's character, and God's promises. One of the most fascinating parts of Luke 1 is that Zechariah and Mary seem to have similar reactions to the angel's announcement. But Zechariah gets tongue-tied and Mary sings a song. They get different consequences. Maybe because Zechariah is a priest, he's in the holy place, meant to be expecting God to be there, to show up and to speak, and yet he, he doesn't. He let his expectations be lowered through disappointing experience. We talk sometimes about what does it mean for our hearts to be discipled by disappointment? Is it puts us into a place of low expectation for the grace and mercy and love and kindness and promise-keeping work of God in our life. Somehow the angel is able to discern the difference between the questions of Zechariah and Mary. And we live in a time, and this is why I think this is an important part of the Advent Guide, we live in a time as doubting God, doubting your confidence in the faith of your family, doubting the things that you've grown up with. There, there is, we do deconstruction well, and there's an important part of that process in many of our stories. But if we can do deconstruction with enthusiasm, we also need to look at what type of lives are we building. My dad used to talk about like it, it, it takes unskilled workers one day to tear down what skilled workers built in a year. Basically, like anybody can do the work of tearing down. What are you building? Sometimes in our culture, and I think in this culture as well, doubt is a little bit overvalued. We're trying to buy the dips, folks. That's a little stock market joke. That'll be the last one. Uh. Our doubts, right? Our doubts. Uh, here's the thing. God rarely meets a doubt that he celebrates. Scan the scriptures. God has great compassion for us, but the territory of questioning the character and love of God is not a place he wants us to make home. Your doubts may send you on a quest, but they are not to be the place that you live. God longs for you to know that you are loved, that you can count on him, that you have a share in his kingdom, that, that you can depend on the promises of God, even if they're very old promises. Sometimes doubt is overrated, overvalued. Here we go. We'll keep rolling. Meanwhile, the people who were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple, when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When this time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months re remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. The fourth part of your Advent guide is that misunderstanding is real, but it's not everything. Misunderstanding is real, but it's not everything. Something incredible has happened to this man. But the man who it happened to cannot fully communicate what has happened. I, I promise you, this is very often how preachers feel when we talk to you. I'm not fully re representing this. I want people to encounter something, but I feel like I can barely, I'm just gesturing, and it's like, is it even coming through? They wonder why he's taking so long. And you, you know they begin to fill in the, the gaps, right? This is one of the things that happens in human misunderstanding is we have a question about someone's motivation or someone's experience or someone's intention. And when there's a gap between us relationally, we fill that gap with our guesses. And very often those guesses are wrong. 
And so we need to get together and hear one another's real heart. This is some of you have experienced this in your family, in your close friendships, in your relationships, where a misunderstanding that could have been worked through is filled with all these wrong guesses. For some of them, it was going to be quite a while before they would know. If they didn't follow up with what was going on with Zachariah and Elizabeth, they maybe never know what this moment, this incident was about. Some of you have had experiences like that. You're like, there was a glimmer of something divine, like God was at work, something happened. God showed up. I felt like maybe God was speaking, but I never went forward from there. And now you filled in the gaps of what that experience was with a bunch of your own assumptions. Misunderstanding is real, but it's not everything. So reserve your judgment. This is, one, this, is, this is true for Advent, but it is true for us in our culture. Can you practice reserving your judgment? Do you know, as important as we all are, that we don't have to have a take on everything right away? That actually silence is okay? It's, it's an effective practice. Waiting to see is, is also okay. And I wanna say, wait and see is an Advent posture. And it's an important one that we need to learn to sit in the silence and not fill our misunderstandings with all of our best guesses as if they're the new reality. All right, next piece. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. The fifth part of our Advent guide is to let God speak your identity. Into the silence that we were just practicing in step four, we're going to let God speak our identity. Zechariah was an old man and a priest and should have known something of who he was. Mary is a teenage girl in a time of greatly limited opportunity in the world for someone of her station. And yet God makes sure she hears how he feels about her. That is a profound part of this story. God makes sure he speaks true identity over Mary's life and heart. Look at what she, look at what she hears. God has seen you. God has seen you. What a thing to hear. You are highly favored. Now, some of us have no problem thinking God sees us. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I know he sees me, and he's probably disappointed. Maybe the harder part of the identity is he says, I love you. I'm, you're highly favored. I, I will long to pour out blessing on your life. God sees you. You are highly favored. This gets repeated. Oh, yeah, and what? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You have a role to play in Jesus showing up in the world. And even though this is spoken in a very specific context to Mary, I don't think it's a leap to say this is true for you as well. You are seen. God shows us his favor. He has a role for us to play. He's speaking over your life, do not be afraid. And there's a way you can help bring the reality of Jesus into your world in surrender and faith and love. This is true for Mary and can be true for each of us. Let God say the truest thing about you. Let God speak your identity. So we keep rolling. 
You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and ever. His kingdom will never end. The sixth part, we're halfway there, of our Advent guide is God has a dream and God shares his dream. God has a dream and God shares it. I said we were gonna mention this again. Way back in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of the known world at that time, has a dream that really, really haunts him. And he is so spooked by this dream that he calls all of his advisors and wise men and satraps and all of them, and he, he, he says, all right, I want you to tell me what this dream is about. And they're like, okay, tell us the dream. He's like, no, 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 I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to trick me. You tell me the dream and the interpretation, and if you don't, you're all dead. This guy is freaking out. The power has gone to his head a little bit. So he's pretty rough on his advisors, and none of them can do what he asks. None of them can tell Nebuchadnezzar the dream. So Daniel, who has been carried off from Jerusalem into exile, his name has been changed to Belshazzar. You you, you remember that. Um, He's rounded up to be killed with the rest of them, and he says, hang on. Maybe God will show us what's up. Daniel actually is a pretty great book to go back and read during Advent because it has some unbelievable prophecies of what's to come and it shows how to live as a creative minority in a world that's going completely the opposite way. But God reveals to Daniel the substance and the interpretation of the dream. And he goes before Nebuchadnezzar and he says, listen, God is showing you what is to come. He's showing you the empi- your empire and the empires of the world that are gonna follow after you but ultimately that God himself is going to establish a kingdom that is not made with human hands at all that will endure forever. So by the time we get to Luke 1, a lot of time has passed between Daniel 2 and that dream happening and what's happening in in first century Israel. But we've had the Babylonians. We've had the Medo-Persian dynasty. We've had the Greeks in both parts with Alexander and the Seleucid and Ptolemaic dynasty. Now we've had the Roman Empire and we've come right up to the place And if you remember in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, each of these is depicted by a different material in this large statue. But God is saying, I am establishing my dream. I am establishing a kingdom that will never end. I am establishing a kingdom of sons and daughters brought into my family who bear the image of God. Let your kingdom come is an Advent prayer in a world that is not right. I like to run. I haven't always. I've, I've been back and forth. What, I remember so distinctly as a child watching Rocky IV, which I think is the best Rocky of, of the series, and being so motivated by the training montages in this that I went out and just ran around my, na- my neighborhood many times. Did anyone do this? Did anyone go exercise immediately after watching Rocky? I see that hand back there. Put your name in the, in the, in the, uh, the info box in the back, and we're going to get together and have coffee. I would run through my suburban neighborhood in South Carolina. And I encountered a bully from time to time. I run now, I run through all over Brooklyn. I run, th- I run through Prospect Park. I run around Greenwood Cemetery. I-, I ran through the whole city a couple of weeks ago. You know what's never happened to me? No one's ever chased me in a truck while I was running. No one's ever thought that they saw me around a construction site and so they're gonna chase me in a truck and and run me out of the neighborhood and before I get a chance to even answer a question about what's going on, shoot me with a shotgun. I like to run. 
When I saw the video of Ahmaud Aubrey being shot, running through the neighborhood, it turned something in my stomach. And I said earlier, you don't have to have a take on everything that happens in the world, but something happened in me that day. I was late. I'm a late adopter on the technology stuff and on, on Facebook and Instagram and all of it. And basically, I had only used that stuff up to that point to like show pictures of my family because I thought that's what it was supposed to be. Just like, hey, look, mom, you live in another town. This is how big the kids are now. That's what I was using Instagram for. And, fi- and it was like the first time I was like, I got to do something. I got to say something. I got to try to raise a little awareness for this nonsense. And, and we have... We, we, this atrocity. I mean, I didn't have any words for it. Like, and so I was like, okay, I've, I, I still don't hit every single thing that happens in culture, but I was like, I'm going to try to use whatever little piece I have to say this can't be. This is wrong. This is not the way the world is meant to be. This is a horror. And listen, we found out this past week that the men responsible were finally arrested, finally tried, and finally convicted as they, as they should have been. There was a, a video of them shooting the guy. But this was a pretty widely publicized video. It took months for them even to be arrested. Black pastors had to travel from all over to Georgia to the location to advocate for this young man. Here's the thing. As we go through this Advent guide, and some of it is lighthearted, but God has a dream. (laughs) He's sharing it with us. And we have to be the people who, who take it up and accept it. And we have prophets who come along, Zachariah and Mary and Martin Luther King Jr., who, who give us pictures of the dream. And they show us a little bit of the way the world could be, the way the world should be. And so when we see the way the world isn't like that, we have to be those who stand up and say, no, 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 this is not God's dream. There's another way. And in God's kingdom, every tribe and tongue and nation is a part of that dream. And we're going to celebrate it together. And so we should cry out and say, no, enough. We live in a world where justice is delayed. We live in a world where sin isn't always immediately punished. We live in a world that needs repair. We live in a world where we often say, how long, O Lord? When will you set things right? And so for for different reasons than Mary, but maybe with some similar urgency, we say, how can this be? That's her question. How, how, How can this be? Seems like there's a couple of obstacles in the way of what you're saying. So we need the next part. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And he and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Number seven in the TGC Advent Guide is no word from God will ever fail. Church, let's remember it. Let's hang on to it. Let's tell one another that. Let's sing one another that. Let's pass one another notes about that. Let's post that on our Instagram. Let's hold out hope in the, in the darkness and the frustration when justice is delayed. Let's remember that no word from God is ever going to fail. And if it appears to have failed, it is not the end. In Advent, heaven is promising us no word from God will ever fail. There have always been in the world sophisticated, cynical, accomplished, powerful voices that say, see, God is not there. He's a myth. He's a delusion. He's not coming. He's not showing up. 
And we need to speak strongly in the pain of the moment that when it seems like God is absent or delayed or never showing up over and over again, we have received this, we have seen this reality play out. No word from God will ever fail. So can we say what Mary says? I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. An Advent prayer for you, number eight in our Advent guide, is may your word to me be fulfilled. Can we make this our prayer? The combination of those two things is a powerful, powerful life, church. For an individual, for a community, for a family, to say no word from God will ever fail and may your word to me be fulfilled. In that is a life of faith, is a life of gospel, is a life of hope, is, is a life of standing up for, for the world being set right. No word from God will ever fail. May your word to me be fulfilled. Can we make this a prayer? Maybe that's all you can muster in Advent. Fill to me. She's talking about you're gonna have a baby. She's like, I'm a virgin. May your word be fulfilled. Obstacles. Let's keep moving. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted her greeting reached my ears. The baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Number nine in our Advent guide is hope is stronger together. These two women, heroes of Luke 1, by the way, say more about that in, in, in a little bit, show up with Advent expectation and hope. And, and these two women find themselves in a very unexpected place. They're carrying the gospel in a literal way and they need each other and they show us that hope is not a solo effort. When one comes to the other and, and, and her faith is seen, it causes celebration in the other. When one shows up, another receives the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of the way the church is meant to work. When I saw you today, I just wanted to move to you and embrace you and let you know that you are loved. And we speak the words of promise back to one another. We speak the words of identity back to one another. We help one another worship. We, help, we pray for one another to be filled with the Spirit. We pray for one another to be filled with the gifts of God. We pray to one another to remember who we really are, that we're we're working for and, 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 and walking in the grace of this Jesus who has redeemed us. Angel shows up to Zach and he doesn't believe right away and he gets tongue-tied. Angel shows up to Mary. She has real questions, but she shares them honestly. God shows grace to her. And she, she, she immediately moves on her hope, and she moves towards another person. Hope is stronger together. And so far away from the silence of Zechariah, Mary, from, from, from this deep encouragement, and after her cousin is filled with the Spirit, Mary sings an Advent song. Mary sings a true Christmas song. Mary sings a, a song of overcoming. Mary sings an anthem of the kingdom of God. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered 
scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. And to, to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. What a song. The 10th section of our Advent Christmas guide is some songs topple the empire. Some songs topple empire. I was on a call with a bunch of pastors from around the country and a few international uh, the, the other day. I was listening to a man who's a, who's a pastor. He teaches a seminary in Vancouver. And he was, he was recounting his time of pastoring in the Philippines in the 80s when he was leading a church um, that was like highly um, censored and, and, and sort of like um, uh, bugged basically by, by the government. And they, they really tuned in on what they, they were saying. And this was right around the time the dictator Ferdinand Marcos was about to be ousted from power in the Philippines, uh, which happened in 86. So the church is being closely watched by the government, and they kept an eye on their message. And they said specifically around Christmas time, you're not allowed to read the Magnificat. <laughs> you're not allowed to read Mary's song on the edge, receives a word from God and sings this powerful song. And those in the palace, in the place of power, know that this is the type of song that topples empire. And they're like, do not sing this song. It is illegal to read Mary's song in this church because this is a state-sponsored church. So Mary's song was off limits. Sometimes I'm like, maybe it's... We have it pretty easy when it comes to sermon prep around here. This song is a threat to corrupt power. It's a threat to empire. So one day, this pastor knew, actually, that um, Marcos's power was being threatened in a lot of different ways, and the CIA was involved, and he knew that there was an image maker that had been sent to help sort of uh, uh, refurbish Marcos' like, identity um, in, in the public. He was an image maker, and he was coming. There was a CIA agent with him, and they were both in his, in his service. And it was around Advent, and he knew he was supposed to preach on Daniel 2 and Nebuchadnezzar's dream and this big statue and the different empires and how, one, uh, how the empire is about to fall. And this image maker is sitting there, and he, he comes under the power of the Holy Spirit. And he knows the next day he has to go meet with the most powerful man in the land, Ferdinand Marcos. And, he, and he's, he, he's supposed to help him reshape his image. And he falls under such conviction, hearing Daniel recount Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the interpretation to him about the different empires. And he says, all I'm going to do when I meet with Marcos tomorrow is read this, this vision from Daniel 2. That's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to say another word. Literally risking his, his life to do this. Can't read the Magnificat, but he goes to something else. He goes in. He reads Daniel 2. Marcos is furious. I don't actually know exactly what happened from that encounter for, but just a few months later, Marcos was out of power. This pastor was sharing with us the power of the Word of God. The power of an everlasting kingdom. And this song coming through the trembling voice of a teenage girl on the outskirts of an empire where she should have absolutely been ignored is singing the most powerful words that this is what God lifts up and this is what God puts down and this is the kingdom that will last forever. Number 11 also comes from Mary's song and it's to get your theology from what happens. 
Specifically, get your theology from what happens in Scripture. In the beginning of the Gospels, and the end of the Gospels, by the way, but in the beginning of the Gospels, women are carrying, speaking, singing, trusting the Gospel, often showing much more faith than the men. In the end of the Gospel accounts, it's the women showing up at the cross, showing up at the grave, proclaiming the resurrection to the apostles. We take these accounts of what women do in the Gospels and all through the the New Testament epistles, leading churches and carrying messages and financially supporting and having the church in their home and being the first among the apostles. And then we take a couple of proof texts from 1 Timothy and Titus and we say, these are the things now women cannot do. Women cannot lead or preach or hold a certain authority in the church. That's bad theology. I want to tell you, I grew up with it. But you need to get your theology from what happens in the scripture. Because half of those passages in, in 1 Timothy and Titus, you, would, you don't listen to anyway. You're not saying that they have to wear a head covering. You're not saying they have to be absolutely silent. You've picked and chosen in these couple of proof passages, and you've ignored what Jesus is having women do. I'm preaching this to myself. <laughs> because that's a theology I grew up with, and I thought to be faithful to the word, that I had to limit my sisters in some way, and it's a lie. Does God heal people? What happens in scripture? Does God rescue and forgive and transform even the most unlikely? What happens in scripture? Does God use people who have a broken past, who fail in the middle of the height of their ministry? What happens in scripture? Are there miracles that we can count on? What happens in scripture? Don't build a theology out of your tiny limited experience and selective reading of a few proof texts in the Bible. Build a theology on what happens. What happens in the word? Okay, last part. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. Love that part. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah, but his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. Here's the last part of the Advent guide. Obey God's word and obey God's word to you. What's happening here is Elizabeth is keeping the word of the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the law of God. She's obeying it. She's having her son circumcised, but also she's obeying the specific revelation that had occurred to her family, to her husband, to to their life. And so this is part of the the Advent hope, part of the Christian life, is to say, the the scripture is the guardrail of my experience. If I have a word from the Lord and it goes against the the, the word of scripture, then we know we choose the word of scripture over my subjective experience. But God is going to speak to us in the revealed word of God, and that's the guardrail for our subjective experience. But God also whispers to us as sons and daughters of God. And when we ignore that, we do something to our conscience in a negative way. We become less sensitive to the voice of the Spirit in our life. We should take risks of faith that the Holy Spirit breathes into our lives as well as honoring and obeying what God has said to us in the Word. Sometimes we're like, I have no idea what God is saying to me in my life. Well, some of the things are actually even written down. You can know God's saying this to you. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, get together with other believers, be radically generous, go the extra mile, turn the other. These are things God is saying to you. He's saying them to you. And he's also saying to you, hey, for this season, I want you to set that aside. It's fine, but it's not for you right now. This job, I I want you to 
make these, these your emphasis in the, in the next couple, couple of weeks. Or, or today, I want you to forgive yourself. I forgave you three weeks ago. I want you to forgive yourself. We need to obey the word and the word God speaks to us. Both are part of the fullness, the treasure, the life of the Christian hope. That's it, folks. We got through 12. 12! There's never been 12 points in a sermon. It's absurd. Why are you clapping? I'll never do it again. Here's what I want you to go away with, church. God is moving in our time, not on our time. God is moving in our time, not on our time. Advent is a time to hope and to wait and sometimes just to be quiet. What is guiding your life? These things are meant to be wrung out over the next month together. Well, I want to invite you to come back to these things. I'm going to try to come back to these things as, as words from the story of God to my heart in our time. Can you believe that no word from God will ever fail? If you can, even just a little bit, you can say at the beginning of Advent, may your word to me be fulfilled. And I think God will move powerfully in those spaces. Let's pray the Advent prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. Church, let's say it together. Come, Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, will you move in the power of your spirit? Will you speak to us? God, every every one of us is is in a place of, of, of being less than fully formed. You have a picture of what we're going to be. And even our perception of you, God, is like through a mirror dimly. God, would you begin to draw close? Would you reveal the glory of Jesus, <laughs> the glory of God in the face of Christ to word from you will ever fail? Would you help us to say, may your word to me be fulfilled? Be with us in our waiting in this Advent season. Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. Help your church respond to your whisper right now. In Jesus' name, amen.